Oxford University Press provides a wide range of resources so that you have everything you need to support your teaching of geography. Student books and digital resources on Caboodle blend expertly, helping you to create a coherent curriculum and connect learning in school and at home. Accessible and exciting courses range from Key Stage 3 through to A-Level and include schemes of work and built-in assessment to save you time. Meanwhile, our best-selling revision guides and workbooks support students to consolidate learning throughout the year. Visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash geography to find out more. Hello there and welcome to JobPod. Today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Mark Maslin, a Professor of Climatology at University College London. Mark, you've got such a wide range of expertise. It includes causes of climate change, its effects on the global carbon cycle, biodiversity and human evolution. You've published over 165 papers, so we've got shed loads that we could talk about. And you've also got two books coming out next year. One's called Climate Change, or a short introduction. And the other one, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, Penguin, which I've just been looking at. You can pre-order that now. It's coming out on the 22nd of April, 2021. It looks absolutely astounding. I think that's wonderful. You've got a number of posts on the conversation, and we can put the links on that to the website. So as a resource for A-level teachers, I think what we're going to talk about today will just be absolutely spot on. So thanks very much for joining us today pleasure i mean i have to say anything i can do to help geography teachers because they're the ones that infuse students on a day-to-day basis and make them realize that geography is a real subject and actually matters in the world and that's where we get our incredible undergraduates from at ucl and they all come because of having a geography teacher that's inspired them and then they go on to do brilliant things after we've trained them and released them into the world well, that's excellent to hear. And, and we will cover a number of topics that, that are on GCSE and A-level specs, but they're also just hugely important globally anyway, beyond just what students would learn. We're going to look at climate change, science and policy, a bit about early human evolution, which I found really interesting when I was reading this. The Anthropocene, quaternary climates. And towards the end, I, I think we'll find this really useful, a little on challenging the deniers of climate change and looking positively towards COP26 and some of the, the more positive ways of looking at the change in the future. I want to go all the way back to when I was doing geography at school. This probably was just towards the end of the last ice age when we were taught about a cycle of ice ages that followed a regular pattern. The last ice age ended about 12,000 years ago, so I was taught, which is true. But we were also, well, we'll give or take a few thousand years here and there, depending on where you were. But I was also taught we were in interglacial, and they were typically sort of 10 to 30,000 years long. And there was talk of us potentially going into another ice age, not imminently, but that was a, certainly a long-term prediction. So th- that was, that was the, the sort of context of, of my learning at the time. And some climate change deniers offer that as a, as, as a myth, if you like, that we shouldn't be leaving global warming now, because in the 1970s, they were predicting an ice age or cooling. I think the really interesting thing is 
we have collected climate records from around the world and we we're able to look at the temperature record now over about the last 150 years and the interesting thing is you have to remember in the 1970s we were just getting to grips with understanding past climates we were just starting to get the first records that were showing that in the last two and a half million years there's been 50 ice ages. So we were starting to get to grips with this and nobody had any idea how quickly ice ages started or how quickly they finished. And I think for me, what was really telling is that actually there was a pause in the warming during the 1970s. And actually in the 80s, temperatures started to rise and actually they just continued to rise and rise. Interestingly enough, it is a good odds if you want, if you're a betting person, that 2020 will be the warmest year on record. Um, and so you can turn around to the climate deniers and say, well, science moves on. Yes, in the 1970s, people were worried about cooling. And I have to say, there will be another ice age at some point in the future. The most interesting thing is that due to the greenhouse emissions by humans, we've already delayed that probably by 50,000 years. And if we keep emitting carbon, we might have put off the next ice age for half a million years. Do you know, when I was doing this first time around, because they always talked about the ice age, I honestly thought there was only one ice age. I think that's how I approached it up until we were taught about ice ages in the sixth form. Um, and that's when we were first taught about uh, Malutin Milankovic's work. My teacher introduced it as the shake, rattle and roll theory. <laughs> and, he, and he brought in a spinning top and spun the top. And he said, I can't, I can't show you how, it's, how the planet is going around the sun, but I can show you how there are wobbles and changes. And, and he said, imagine this is what the Earth is doing as it's spinning around the sun. It's not going around perfectly. And he went on then to, to explain how... Milutin Milankovic had, had looked at the various different movements of, of the planet to explain what causes ice ages. So can you take us through that, that theory? What, what was it that Milutin Milankovic came up with? Milankovic was a brilliant Serbian mathematician and climatologist, and he postulated and published in 1941 the idea that there were three changes in the Earth's orbit. And these combine to change the amount of sunlight received uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. And he postulated that every so often with these cycles, you would get slightly cooler summers in the Northern Hemisphere. And by that, you would allow a little bit of ice to survive and therefore you could start growing ice sheets. Now, it wasn't until the 1960s that A, his work was properly translated into English so scientists could look at it. And it wasn't until the late 60s when we got deep sea sediment records, so long million year records, that actually started to show these cycles actually occurring in the climate. And so we could tie the theory, which was already uh, 20 years old, to the actual evidence. Um, and this is why we uh, call it the Milankovitch theory, because we've been able to show that fundamentally he was correct in 1941. So I think it's interesting to take you through the three different wobbles and these changes in what we call orbital forcing. 
The first one is eccentricity. So most people assume that the Earth goes round the sun in a circle. It doesn't. It goes round in an ellipse. So it has a longer ends and closer ends to the sun. But this shape of the ellipse changes. It gets slightly more circular, more elliptical over about a 96,000 year period. And so that's a very small change. The second one is obliquity, or as I jokingly say, the Americans call it tilt, which is the axis of rotation, which currently tilts towards the sun during summer for us and away from the sun in winter that wobbles up and down. And that has a cycle of about 41,000 years. And the last one, which is precession, which I, even university students, I basically have that sinking feeling. I go, I'm really sorry. This is the complicated one. Because there's a couple of bits of precession. The first one is the spinning top. The spinning top is a brilliant analogy. If you pump up a spinning, an old fashioned spinning top, it goes around really fast. But you see the pump also wobbles around because some of the angular momentum is then transferred to the axis. And weirdly enough, that happens to the Earth. Earth goes around once every day, and actually over a period of time, that wobbles the axis. So that's the first one. Second one is that ellipse around the sun. Weirdly enough, that rotates around the sun as well. And the way I uh, imagine that is, imagine putting... A, uh, a hoopla round your foot. You know, some people can actually spin it round your foot and jump up and not fall over, unlike me. <laughs> if you imagine me. that, that spinning round your foot is what the Earth's orbit does round the sun. Of course, much slower. If you combine those two, the reason why precession is really important is because it moves the Earth where it is on the circle round the sun seasonally. So it basically has a huge effect on the seasons. And if you combine all those, then you have periods of time when summers in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's really important that it's Northern Hemisphere, are colder and therefore ice can build up. But one of the things I stress to my students is orbital forcing is a very small change. It does not cause ice ages. It's the climate feedbacks that actually cause the ice ages. And my example is, if we go back 18,000 years uh, to when you were born, and of course, during the middle of the uh, Ice Age, guess what? The orbital parameters were the same as today. So having certain orbital parameters does not translate directly into Ice Age, non-Ice Age. It's the direction of travel and the climate feedbacks that actually make an Ice Age. So you talked there about forcings. Um, that's probably a, a term worth defining. Am I right? If we're, if we're looking at factors affecting climate change, there are three things that are going on. There are climate forcings, then you mentioned feed, climate feedback, and then we've also got perhaps a term climate tipping points. Yep. So if we think about the orbital forcing, what happens is it's just changing the amount of sunlight or energy received by the Earth at a particular latitude. The way I think about that is if I had a time machine and a really annoying student, usually ones that turn up late to my lecture, I would give them a lux meter to measure the sunlight and put them in the time machine and get them to go back to northern Scotland every day, all the way back through time. And you would then get a record of sunlight, which would go up and down psychically 
due to the orbital forcing. Now, the key thing is that forces the climate in a certain direction. What happens then are the climate feedbacks. So the most important one is, if you think about it, when you build up a little bit of ice, so it survived summer because it's slightly cooler, you then have a start of an ice sheet. That then has a much higher albedo, so it reflects a lot more sunlight, and so therefore the area becomes even cooler. So that's a positive feedback, which produces more snow that survives the summer, which then reflects more sunlight, and so you have this positive feedback to build up an ice sheet. Those ice sheets then get big enough, and we're talking sometimes over Scotland, we were talking about a one and a half kilometer high ice sheet. And over Chicago and over North America, we're talking three kilometers of ice. They then are so big, they act as mountain ranges, and actually the atmosphere is then skewed and moved. The atmosphere then means that colder conditions are brought further south. You then change the ocean circulation you change the deep ocean circulation, all of those feedback into actually driving the climate of the Earth into cooler and cooler conditions. You then have other positive feedbacks, which is CO2, methane, and water vapor drop, and therefore those reduced greenhouse gases mean that the climate of the Earth gets colder. And this is really slow. So it takes about a, maybe 80,000 years to get into a full deep glacial if you want to know how big that is, last ice age, the ocean, which covers 70% of the uh, world's surface, dropped by 120 meters. That's the same height as the London Eye. So just to give you the volume of water that was sucked up from the oceans and dumped into the ice sheets around the world. Hence, we could walk to the continent if we'd been there, if you'd gone back in the time machine, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. During every uh, Ice Age, uh, Britain really was part of Europe. And what's also interesting is that North America was actually connected across the uh, Bering Straits to Asia. It's really interesting that people 13,000 years ago were able to cross there and first populated um, the Americas, both North America and South America. There were other forcings, weren't there, but on a, on a lesser scale. So I suppose things like aerosols and, and dust and volcanic action, but on a, is that on a much smaller scale? So that's on a smaller scale. I mean, the, the dust circulation is really important because that shows how dry the conditions. You can go to China and you can, in the western part, you can see these incredible lowest deposits which is just windblown dust. I mean, these are tens of meters deposited during each ice age. And it shows how dry the climate was during an ice age. And we know from Tyndall's original work in 1850 that water vapor is the most important greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So if you make a drier world, you also make a cooler world as well. I'd like to ask you then and talk a little bit about the quaternary, because is, is that the main reason for the climate changes during Quaternary, what we've talked about now? So the Quaternary is a defined period of geological time, which starts about two and a half million years ago. And it's defined by the start of the Great Northern Ice Ages. So we haven't had these ice ages all the time. They started, again, about two and a half million years. And for the first 
one and a half million years, they occur about every 41,000 years, which makes sense. It, it fits with tilt. And if you think about it as the world tilts towards or away from the sun, it makes Northern Hemisphere summers warmer or cooler. And of course, when it's shallower, that makes cooler summers and therefore that would drive an ice age. But after about a million years ago, the ice ages then started to occur, A, being longer, and they occurred about uh, every 100,000 years. And it's really interesting because people always want to know, well, how comes these ice ages started um, it, with the beginning of the Quaternary? And it's partly because of long-term tectonic changes. So weirdly enough, the uplift of the Himalayan plateau started to change atmospheric circulation. It started to erode and basically suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. So we're starting to get long-term drop in uh, CO2. We also had things like the changes and closure of the Panama. So up until about 5 million years ago, um, the Atlantic and the Pacific could actually exchange water through the Panama Isthmus, or the Panama Isthmus now has grown there. And so the final key is that there are long-term cycles within our orbital forcing. So tilt, even though it's 41,000 years, those 41,000-year cycles, the amount of tilt gets larger over a sort of million-and-a-half-year cycle. And so that came to a peak at the right time, and all of these coalesced into a tipping point. So the climate got to two and a half million years. The world then moved into a cooler ice house type world and then couldn't get out of it again. So that's an interesting way of seeing the Quaternary as a tipping point in Earth science. Do we understand why there are cold conditions that are dominant for most of the Quaternary, but then we have these interglacial conditions, but they're only short-lived and then we go back in again? So the really interesting thing is to explain to people that for the last two and a half million years, about 80% of the time we've been in a mild or a full glacial. What's interesting about the current interglacials is that they seem to be tied to having really deep glacials. So for about 80,000 years, you'll have mild glacial conditions, you'll have relatively big ice sheets, but then there is the orbital forcing pushes us into deep glacials like 18,000 years ago when the ice sheets get much bigger. This is where the climate feedback comes back because these ice sheets then become incredibly vulnerable because they basically go onto the ocean. And so they get so big that they spill onto the ocean. And this is where we have one of the rapid feedbacks. <clears throat> so if you have slightly warmer summers, you melt a little bit of ice, that base raises sea level. You have to remember sea level, sea temperatures are about minus one, maybe one and a half degrees. Weirdly enough, the bottom of an ice sheet is minus 30. So it's like pouring hot water onto it. And so what happens is you rise sea level, it undercuts the ice sheet, they then pour more ice into the ocean, sea level rises. And this is why ice ages seem to disappear in less than 4,000 years, because there's this really rapid uh, destruction of ice sheets. And the most interesting thing is that when you have this happening, 
you then have the destruction of the ice sheet, but the climate system goes too far. There's an overshoot. So instead of going back to mild glacials, you suddenly destroy all the ice sheets and you go into a short interglacial, a sort of tepid warm period that we have at the present day. And then orbital forcing takes us back into a mild glacial. You've, you've also talked about work towards understanding this. And, and one of the things that I read about was the, the eccentricity myth, which I'm, I'm not sure I quite understood. So. <laughs> so it's, again, how science moves on. So the last eight glacial interglacial cycles, on average, are about 100,000 years in length. So people saw 100,000 years, saw that eccentricity is 96,000 years, and went, that must be the cause. The problem is that the, the small changes from a circle to an ellipse or to, from ellipse to a bigger ellipse are really, really small. They have the least effect out of all of the actual parameters on climate. And it wasn't until people then started to look in depth that they realized that the average is basically telling us a bit of a statistical lie because the actual length of the ice ages are things like 80,000 years, 120,000 years. You know, they're, they're not 100,000 years. And so what it turns out is, of course, that we think that it's every fourth or fifth processional cycle. So instead, we've moved from an obliquity-dominated world, and then suddenly the seasonal changes by procession after a million years take over. And what happens is you get... Uh, four processional cycles that occurs about every 20,000 years, so that's 80,000 years. And then you have a weak one, which allows a big ice uh, to build up. You have a big, deep, cold glacial. And then, of course, you have a strong processional upturn, which then gets rid of it. And so what we realized is the eccentricity myth was purely because we weren't looking at the data clearly. And actually, it tells us much more about the climate because as we'll see when we talk about human evolution procession is so important to the climate of the earth well i'm glad you've mentioned human evolution because I, I was going to ask you a question about that because i thought it was fascinating this connection between climate change and human evolution that you talk about and and particularly connected to african climate change and and the lakes that formed or didn't I'm just amazing. Well, I've been fascinated with human evolution since I was an A-level student. It's one of those things that resonates with all of us, which is where did we come from and why Africa? And what was really interesting is I've been very lucky to work with some brilliant colleagues. And we did some field work in Africa and started to realize that there was an old theory, which is that Africa got drier. And every time it got drier, new species of hominid evolved to deal with the dry conditions. But we came there and we started to do some real proper paleoclimatology and realized that at the same time as they were saying there was drying, actually there were big, deep freshwater lakes filling up the whole of the Rift Valley. And what we realized is there were particular periods of time which were caused by orbital forcing, whereby there were real radical changes in climate. So you would have this 20,000 year cycle driven by procession. You would have these freshwater lakes 
filling up the whole of the Rift Valley. You're talking 300 meters deep, freshwater lakes filling the whole Rift Valley. And then after about 8,000 years, they all disappeared and you suddenly get these incredibly dry conditions. And so what you have is these short periods of time that alternate from incredibly wet and lush, very, very dry and arid, back to wet. And what's interesting in terms of evolution is there are three periods of time that matter. Firstly, wet conditions. Wet conditions means there's huge amounts of resources, lots of animals are flourishing, and therefore there's lots of opportunity for population to grow and for competition to happen and evolution. Dry periods, really obvious. You have dry extreme events which is causing stress on uh, hominins, and therefore perhaps that caused evolution. But the most interesting thing is the transition between wet and dry and dry to wet, where things are unpredictable. So you have this sort of like, or it might be wet, might be dry, bad season, good season. That is where we think some of the real interesting traits of humans, i.e. intelligence, social uh, teamwork and things like that, those could have been driven by the transitions, not the stable wet or dry periods. And it just gives this incredible, uh, I'd say, mosaic of climate change. So you have these boring periods where not much happens. You then have these periods where it goes wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry, and lots of new species emerge and also go extinct. Another boring period then you have this perhaps 100,000 years of wet, dry, wet, dry. And it's really interesting that now, having pointed out that procession drives everything in Africa, and we published this sort of uh, at 2005, it's really interesting now that textbooks and other people refer to this. And interesting, because it's so accepted, they don't bother to cite us anymore. <laughs> <laughs> And then you've got dispersal after that. So from that position of development there in Africa, the uh, people dispersed across. Well, we, we think that the lakes are actually driving dispersal um, because when, when it's incredibly dry in the Rift Valley, you basically stay in refugia. Say, for example, Lake Turkana. Okay, it's wet most of the time through the last sort of five million years. You stay there. You you don't go north or south because it's incredible desert. So you're stuck. What we found, or what we realised, is that during wet periods, as the lakes fill up, it sort of pushes you north and south. You can't go up the rift shoulders anymore because it's so moist. That's dense forest. And as humans, yeah, we, we like nice open forestry, nice river, etc. You really don't want to be trying to hack your way through sort of dense <laughs> forest. Um, and so what happened is, is these lakes grow. They were pushing human population, which was growing because of all the resources, both north and south. It also is interesting because when you have this greening of Africa, you also have the greening of the Middle East. So you almost have this green pathway going now you've left Ethiopia. Look, it's all green. You can just follow us northwards and you can either go the southern uh, Arabian crossing uh, or you can go through the Middle East all into sort of like northern India and through to China. And we first see that about 1.8 million years ago with Homo erectus. We see it again about a million years ago with 
home of Heidelberg Ensis. And then we see successive um, migrations of Homo sapien starting from about 110,000 years ago. So climate change is going to be affected by that change in vegetation. But as the human species spread, they were also having an impact. And you, your research suggests much earlier than some people would like to, to start to label this new, this new period, the Anthropocene. So the Anthropocene is this incredible concept, which basically says humans are a new geological superpower. So we as a geological superpower are having an amazing impact on the planet. I'll just give you some stats. So currently we move more soil, sediment and rock than all the natural processes put together. Um, we have made enough concrete to cover the whole surface of the earth, including the oceans, with a layer two millimeters thick. Um, we make 300 million tons of plastic each year. Much of it actually ends up in the oceans. Interesting, there was a BBC article that showed that there's a plastic bag found in the Marianas Trench, which is about sort of uh, 10 kilometers below the surface of the ocean. So air pollution is getting everywhere. And I think the one that is really telling and links back to human evolution is if we look at the weight of land mammals. We take the weight of them, 30% are humans. There's nearly 8 billion of us, okay? That's quite a hefty weight. 67% of the weight of mammals is actually our livestock and our pets. Just 3% of land mammals are wild animals, which David Attenborough goes around filming for us for our entertainment on a Sunday. That's how much we've changed it. And to link it back to human evolution, those first dispersals of Homo sapien, particularly the last one, about 60,000 years, as we spread into each continent, those hunter-gatherers basically slaughtered the megafauna. We were incredible team hunters. We were taking down mammoths. Mammoths had survived every single interglacial except the ones where we came out and killed them all. And every single documentation of humans, of modern Homo sapien, when we get to an island, all the big stuff disappears. And this is repeated again and again and again. So even our hunter-gatherer ancestors already had a huge environmental impact on the planet. That 3% figure is pretty amazing. It's, it's something that people just go, oh, because you can do all the other facts and they go, yeah, 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 we make a lot of concrete. Yeah, 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 we, we use 25% We use twenty-five of the, uh, the world for our agriculture. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Do, do, do. But then you say, yeah, we've wiped out everything and now most of it is cattle, uh, pigs <laughs> and goats. Um, but there's 3% of those lovely wild animals you like. They, they just look at you and go, oh. <laughs> and it, Although, although you say we've wiped out everything and you've talked about animals and particularly the, the, uh, the big ones at the top end of the food chain, we've also wiped out a huge proportion of humans as well. You write about something which I'd never heard of, but I think it's fascinating, called uh, the great dying. Yes, so the interesting thing is that when Simon and I, sorry, this is Simon Lewis and I, were asked to write a review on defining the Anthropocene, we started to try to look for periods of time where you could 
put a golden spike in the geological record and just say, look, here starts the Anthropocene. And I have to say, I have to qualify that. That's Anthropocene epoch, because the term Anthropocene can be used by anybody to mean anything where humans have taken control of the planet in some shape or form. The geological term Anthropocene epoch, which is still not official, is about where can we define when humans really became that geological superpower. And so we started looking for these events. And the really interesting thing is what Simon and I did was go through human history. And we suddenly realized that you can define human history with five key types of human society. So you start off with the hunter-gatherers. And as we saw, they have had a huge impact, particularly on megafauna. We then have the agricultural revolution at the end of the last ice age, where people started to domesticate both animals and plants. And this had an impact on the planet. We also see that they started to increase the amount of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere due to uh, deforestation and wet rice agriculture. We then shift to mercantile capitalism and the expansion of European colonialism in the 15th century. And this is where we'll come back to the great dying. We then have the industrial revolution and industrial capitalism. And then after the second world war, we have the great acceleration where we have consumer capitalism taking over. The interesting thing is each one of these steps or revolutions, firstly increased human population. It increased our environmental impacts hugely it increased the amount of energy each person used. And also the last one increased human knowledge vastly, each one of these steps. So if we go back to the one where Simon and I suggest there should be a golden spike, which is the mercantile capitalism. So as Europeans basically fought wars with each other and then started to uh, have a technological race and started to expand to the other parts of the world, we then have Christopher Columbus, who then crashes into the West Indies and basically then declares it for Europeans. Unbeknownst to him, what he had done was then started a transfer of organisms from the old world to the new world and also exported stuff from the new world to the old world. But that also included things like measles, typhoid, smallpox. And so what happened is the population of the Americas who had transferred, sorry, transversed the Bering Strait 13,000 years ago had no immunity, a bit like COVID. They had no natural immunity to these diseases. And so when the Spanish came and basically started first contact, these diseases started to spread into the populations and just wipe them out. We see that there was something like 56 million people died within 100 years of first contact. There are reports by conquistadors who were going into cities wanting to conquer them and finding that everybody was already dead because the disease wave had actually gone much faster than the Spanish could actually transverse the country. And so this is, and it works out about 10% of the world's population was wiped out due to these diseases. And this gives us a, a major warning about how important it is to understand how pandemics and diseases actually move. 
and how important it is to understand that natural immunity to certain diseases is really important. I, just fascinating. I, I hadn't really considered that at all. As I was been reading about revising history, I come across the, the idea that a lot of them are wiped out through, um, through weapons. But it, and I knew a little bit about disease had killed some of, but not to that huge extent. That really is dramatic. Well, I think the most important thing is we, we were looking at it from the point of view of the climate effect because those 56 million people were all farmers. So what happened is when they passed away, the agricultural land was abandoned and the wild vegetation, whether it was savanna or whether it was rainforest, grew back. And in the ice core records of carbon dioxide, you can see a dip, a real dip in the actual CO2 as this vegetation grows back, sucks CO2 out, and actually, it's centered on 1610. And so there's this amazing pull down of CO2 because of the regrowth. And so Simon and I suggested perhaps that should be the start of the Anthropocene because one, it marks the start of the mass exchange of organisms between the different continents. Uh, I'll give you an example how irreversible this is, not just diseases. You go to North America now and you dig up some soil the majority of earthworms there will be Europeans, okay? They have been brought over. Only reason is because they have a little trick. Um, European earthworms, slightly, uh, slightly smarter. Basically, they go up into the leaf litter, pull it down and go, yummy, yummy. The American earthworms just go, I'm just going to wait for it to rot, okay? <laughs> and so they completely outcompeted just by pure chance. Now, imagine us saying, I'm sorry, we have to set the world back. We have to repatriate all of those European worms back to Europe. You know, it just wouldn't work. But this is repeated again and again. Black rats are everywhere. Uh, cattle are everywhere. So we have homogenized the global food stocks and animals and plants. Maize and cassava are staple diets of Africa. They came from South America. So we were saying that in a million years' time, if aliens come down and look at the Earth, they will see this irreversible movement of species, which this starts in the 15th and 16th century. And so we said the start of the Anthropocene should be centered on this spike at 1610. It also marks dark days of colonialism, uh, start of capitalism, etc. So it resonates with many of the processes that are causing the massive environmental issues and climate change now. And that debate about the Anthropocene is still going on, where should we start it? And along with everything else that you've talked about today, it's complex and we're still learning, which is what science is all about. But that, that leads some people to cherry pick certain bits and then become deniers of the whole thing. Oh yes, but climate change has always changed. That, that sort of comment. So, and you've written an article for The Conversation, which I found really clear, the five corrupt pillars of climate change denial, and you unpick each of those. What I was trying to do is, the problem is that the public, even students studying A-level geography, are bombarded by misinformation all the time. And it's really difficult for them to say, hang on, 
what really is the truth? What, what can I believe? And so what I want to do is just write this simple article that says, look, they're going to throw five different arguments at you about why climate change isn't real. I mean, the first one is the science is wrong. Science is still contested. Uh, we're not sure. It's unreliable. Again, clearly, with the science is exceptional. With, there's about 100% there's consensus among uh, scientists that climate change is happening. The second one is then a little bit more subtle. And it's a bit like the COVID argument, which is, oh, it costs too much money to fix. We, we should just, perhaps we should just leave it to the future because we'll be richer then and then we can deal with it. I mean, the interesting thing is that the, the world generates 88 trillion US dollars every year. And so therefore, money is not an issue. It just happens to be in a very small percentage of people's hands. I, I always love coming into classrooms and going, oh, there's about 30 of you in this class. Did you know that at the moment, uh, there's about, I think it's about 20 billionaires that actually own more wealth than the bottom 3.9 billion people. <laughs> and that sort of like goes, ah, it's like, so there is a lot of money in the world. It's just in very small number of people's hands. There's, then there's the humanitarian denial, which is, oh, perhaps a warmer climate will be better for people because the cold kills more. And again, you can look at heat waves in Moscow, heat waves in the US. Actually, a warmer world is just bad. <laughs> again, it disrupts crops. It disrupts sort of uh, people's working life, etc., and that's easy to discount. There's the political one, which says, "Well, you know, why should we do anything? Other countries aren't going to do anything. Look at China; it's all their fault. Look at America." And the interesting thing with that is, it's a really interesting economic argument because it's shown that if you do something about climate change and you start to decarbonize your economy, your economy grows quicker. We see from the carbon disclosure project that companies that clearly disclose their carbon and actually trying to do something about it are a lot more profitable than ones that don't. So there's a weird economic argument there. And there's also that last one, which I love, which is the crisis denial. It's not that bad. No, people aren't dying of COVID. You know, it's that, it's that sort of like reassuring voice which says, well, we don't have to deal with this. But for me, I think what has been so amazing about the last two years is that the young people of the world have literally risen up. Okay, Greta Thunberg gave a starting point by actually challenging the Swedish parliament by saying you're not doing enough. But this has grown into a movement much greater than Greta. So the last Friday for Future um, uh, demonstration around the world had over 4 million young people striking, not going to school, demonstrating and going, do you know what? You adults, you've mucked it up. It's about time you fixed it before we have to actually come and clean up your mess. Please deal with it. And I think that's been amazing. And it's even more amazing that during COVID, I mean, we're all suffering from this pandemic all around the world. Climate change is still incredibly high on the political list. And there is real optimism out there. The first thing is the UK government last year declared that um, our new target for 2050 
is zero emissions. Okay, Europe has followed suit. They're also now declaring that by 2030, they want to reduce their emissions by 55% compared with 1990 levels. We've even now got China for the first time ever saying that they are going to try to hit net zero carbon emissions by 2060. This is the first time China has ever said or set any long-term targets. They're also going to try and make sure that their carbon peaks by 2030 and then starts to drop. And then the last piece of good news is, of course, that even though President Trump took America out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, a president-elect Biden, his first job in office will be to re-engage the US in the climate negotiations, and he already has set out a large number of policies which will start to get the US back on a decarbonizing footprint and therefore a pathway to having a, what I would say is a cleaner, safer, healthier world, basically for all of us. There's a, a Jonathan Swift quote that I keep going back to. I've, I'm going to mess about with this a bit because I suppose the original was sexist, but it's, uh, you can't reason somebody out of a position that they've arrived at without reason. And so some people are always going to be climate change deniers or whatever the evidence. But as long as we inform students in a way that it can be understood, then we're helping them make that decision so that they can take part in, in things like Fridays for Future. Some teachers are worried that they don't want to be, uh, they don't want to inculcate students, they want to help them develop and, and make their own mind up. The weight of evidence ought to do that. So if you, if you were, if you had a message for teachers now, how would you tackle the one, the, the stress that some teachers have, oh, it's all very negative, I don't know where to start, and to the, the, the key bits of information that they should consider? So I firstly think that young people are incredible because they are able to network with anybody in the world because of modern technology, which they've literally grown up with. They know that their mobile phone can connect with anybody in the world. They can also check any evidence they want to. They can take multiple opinions and make their own decisions, which is incredibly powerful. And they don't listen to mainstream media. So if the right-wing media is saying climate doesn't change, doesn't exist, they're not looking at that. They're listening at the people that formulate their ideas, which are these incredible uh, YouTube bloggers, etc., who are saying, look, guys, this is the evidence. You can trust me. I'm one of you. you know? And so there's a very different way that they're getting their evidence. There's also lots of evidence that the people that they trust most are their teachers. And so when my daughter declared she was going on a climate march, I suddenly panicked and went, oh, my word, is that because I'm a climatologist? Is this because I've been talking too much about climate change? And I interviewed her and I actually wrote this. Can you imagine? I interviewed my own daughter, which is really mean. So I interviewed her for the conversation, which you can read. And basically it turned out that, no, it had absolutely nothing to do with me. It was because her teachers had taught her and were actually taking her through the evidence. And that's why climate change was so important to her. So teachers have an incredible role. And I think the other thing that teachers have to stop worrying about is this generation is fully empowered. 
okay, they know that they can go out and actually go on strikes. They know their voice will be heard. And that, I think, is an amazing thing that young people aren't getting despondent. They actually have a completely different view. When I went on the climate strike, it was amazing. It wasn't like the strikes I went on in the 80s, which were grim, violent, you know, sort of aggressive. No, going on a climate march is basically like going to a festival. You know, it was brilliant. I mean, it's just like everybody's upbeat. This is what democracy looks like, was what being screamed over tinoids. So I think for me, I don't think teachers have to worry about being negative. Set out all the facts, set out that there are loads of solutions. And I sound, this sounds awful because I'm going to plug one of my own books. The reason I wrote How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, is because I was sick and tired of all the negativity. Yes, we have huge issues in the 21st century, both environmental, social, and with the climate. But we also have all the solutions to hand. So there are three chapters that I write, which is what can individuals do? What can companies do? What can governments do? And then there's another one that says, internationally, how can we reorganize ourselves? And it's all about thinking about change. How can we make things better for everyone? And I think that's the new mantra. But then you do have, you, you worry about what do you do with students who just won't change their mind because they're like the Jonathan Swift thing. They, uh, they, they have arrived without reasoning and they're not going to change their mind. But there were lots of teachers feeling very negative about the whole, the whole thing and being concerned about how to raise it and, and how far along they could go before they started feeling that they were influencing children's opinions rather than giving them the facts. And sometimes I think we, well, I think sometimes we've got to try and influence them because they're, they are getting fed stuff from, from the internet. And if they're not as, as selective as you suggested in your piece, which yeah. is nice and positive, but they come up with some bonkers stuff, they, they need to realize that they're being fed a whole load of QAnon bonkers. But I think it's much easier now. So because it's not just scientists talking about climate change. It's not just David Attenborough or the government. You've got big companies like Microsoft saying, oh, yeah, we're a tech company, but we're going carbon neutral by 2030. And by 2050, we're going to remove all the carbon emissions that we've ever produced since 1976 when we were formed. Mm. You've got Amazon saying, yes, I, we're going to be carbon neutral as soon as possible. Sky B has been carbon neutral since 2007. They're now trying to decarbonize their um, supply chain with all the TV companies producing TV programs. They're saying, well, if you're going to do it for us, you need to show us how you're carbon neutral. And so this is... These are big players that aren't doing it just for um, the public, that there's reason behind it, there's science behind it. And so I think we're in a very different place to where we were 20 years ago. Yes, of course, the climate deniers pop up and go, no, 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 this is all, you shouldn't do all this, etc. But actually, the youth of today just look at them and go, you're really old, you're really stupid and you're destroying my planet. Um, could you just get out of the way? And, and I think that's what those people who are completely out of touch just don't understand, which is the new generation is so clued in 
and can get information. They're not going to listen to the Times or the FT, you know? <laughs> and so I think that's really important. So I think the teachers have to actually relax and actually understand that this is a worldwide change. This is a movement. This is, uh, and there's so much positivity that's going to come out in 2021 with COP26 in Glasgow. I mean, they're just going to be bombarded with climate change. We must do things about it right up until next December. And so the teachers are just pushing at an open door going, look, climate change, we can solve it. Look, more, more, you know, and it's just going to be in the news all the time. If COVID has taught us anything, dot, 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 dot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, COVID has been a really interesting, um, I think, global event, but also it has changed people's perspectives on society. Maybe not necessarily so much in the US, but in Europe and the rest of the world, there is this sudden realization which is the only people that actually are going to protect you during a major crisis is the government. And actually, it's interesting in the UK that we are constantly criticizing our government because they're acting too slow, they're not doing it as quickly, um, and actually we want better government to protect us. It isn't the markets, it isn't companies, what happens is some companies are great. So some companies are producing vaccines, they're producing the PPE, et cetera. But most companies are actually going, this is terrible. Um, could you please uh, give us a handout of money so we can survive? And so people suddenly realize this whole neoliberal idea that the markets know best, et cetera, is absolute rubbish. When the chips are down, the only people that will look after the people are government. And it really helps if you have good government because then they really will look after you and so this is a real change this is a step change in people's thinking about society and how connected we are and who looks after you thanks mark that was absolutely fascinating not only have you uh, given me much more information to go on you've certainly made me feel much more positive about our change for the future that's been absolutely a joy this morning thank you very much Absolute pleasure, John. Thank you for having me on. Hi, it's Mark from the GA membership team. This week we have a special offer for you. The Top Spec Geography series is designed for post-16 students and provides an easy-to-follow approach based on the latest research on a wide variety of human and physical geography topics. These cutting-edge resources help bridge the gap between A-level and university and are the perfect accompaniment to A-level geography. Titles include Migration and Global Governance, and Water and Carbon Cycles. And you can now get 15% off any of the six titles available using the code TOPSPEC15. That's all capital letters, followed by 1-5. TOPSPEC15. Visit the GA shop on our website to purchase your copy today. TOPSPEC15.